there are really only two categories of thing. There are created things and there is God. There is everything that exists within the universe and there is the one responsible for creating it all. God is not part of creation. He doesn't exist within nature. That's what pantheists believe, that God is everywhere, um, woven into the very fabric of nature. Uh, But God doesn't exist within nature any more than you or I would exist within a cake that we'd made. Last week I mentioned that we can't use scientific apparatus in our search for God. Because God stands apart from creation. He stands outside of time and space. Therefore, the only way that we can know God is if he reveals himself to us. And he has, supremely, in the person of Jesus Christ. The incarnation, which literally means in the flesh, is about God becoming man. God who stands outside of creation has entered into time and space in first century Palestine. This is the phenomenal and earth-shattering reality of Christmas. We can know what God is like because he has come to us in person. Lots of people who wouldn't necessarily call themselves Christians think they know about the God of Christianity, but often when they speak about God, they cut Jesus out of the picture. You might hear someone refer to all the suffering in the world. They say, well, how can a loving God allow that? But there's no mention of the fact that God himself suffered. In order to defeat evil, Jesus allowed evil to do its worst to him. To me, that doesn't sound like a God who is unmoved by suffering. Writing in his book, The God Delusion, the avowed atheist Richard Dawkins wrote these words. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. It's quite a tirade. Most people wouldn't string all those words together in one long tirade. But that statement contains many of the accusations that people do level against God. But as we go through, I'll let you decide for yourselves whether that description best fits God or the human rulers that fill the annals of history. There is no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. His character is unchanging. The God that Dawkins describes would never place himself in a position of such helpless vulnerability by entering into the world as a defenseless baby. Dawkins' statement cannot be squared by uh, the revelation that we receive in and through Jesus Christ. Trying to describe the God of Christianity, the God of the universe, without reference to Jesus is like trying to describe a tree by only talking about the part of the tree that lies beneath the ground. If you imagine God's revelation to be like a tree, the Old Testament is the roots, the New Testament is the tree itself. You can't gain a full understanding of God without Jesus. 
just as the roots of a tree cannot give you a full understanding of the tree itself. If you want to know what a tree is like, you look primarily to the part of the tree that grows above the ground. And if we want to know what God is like, we look primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to Jesus. And we're not talking about a God who is aloof and impassive, indifferent to the plight of human beings. Quite the opposite. We worship a God who has rolled up his sleeves, metaphorically speaking, and got involved in the mess and the muddle and the pain of human life. When I was in the Royal Marines, we came back off an exercise and we had these large vehicles with tank tracks called BVs, uh, which were absolutely caked in mud. And because we're among the last back to camp, we couldn't get near the the vehicle wash, but our sergeant decided we could wash these vehicles uh, with buckets and hoses. The problem is we only had one hose with a a pathetic little dribble of water coming out. We had two buckets, one of them had a hole in it and a handful of rags, but that's what we were left with. And the sergeant whose idea this was went and drank tea with his oppo in the store from where he could see us all outside struggling away. Needless to say, he had absolutely no intention of getting involved. He was by far the least respected sergeant that I ever worked with. You know, I think it might be hard to worship a God who knew nothing about what it means to be human. John Stott said, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? Well, the incarnation is God picking up the bucket and hose, so to speak. It's God entering into the real world of pain. Not just so that he can identify with us, but so that he can save us from sin and death and separation from him. There are three aspects of God's kingdom made clear to us by the incarnation, uh, by this passage that we read this morning about Jesus' birth, and about the, by the season of Advent, and they're as follows. Firstly, Jesus' kingdom clashes with the kingdom of this world. Secondly, Jesus' kingdom exposes the kingdom of this world. And thirdly, Jesus' kingdom overthrows the kingdom of this world. And it's easy to remember, CEO. Clashes, exposes, overthrows. So firstly, Jesus' kingdom clashes with the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world is in rebellion against God. Humankind has turned away from God and set itself up in opposition. There is an alternative kingdom ruled by Satan. And so the fact that the Roman Empire happened to be the world's superpower at the time, uh, and that Herod was a puppet king with a certain amount of provincial power, that is by the by. It didn't really matter which powers they were, because these powers are representative of the kingdom of this world. What's referred to in Colossians 1 as the dominion of darkness. From the moment of his birth, Jesus was on a collision course with this worldly kingdom. And Luke makes that clear. Uh, Our passage begins with these words. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. When Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, his great-nephew, Gaius Octavius, 
was named in his will as his um, adopted son and heir. Gaius Octavius went on to become known as Caesar Augustus, the very same that Luke is talking about here. And to cut a long story short, after a great deal of violence and political maneuvering, Caesar Augustus managed to take control of the Roman Republic. But he was a very wily, clever politician, and he managed to create the illusion of a democracy uh, when, in fact, he was in total control. And so the Roman Empire was born. Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor. Isn't it interesting that Jesus should come onto the world stage at this point in history? But there's more. Caesar Augustus declared that his late father, Julius Caesar, was divine. And he gave himself the title Divi Filius, which means son of the divine or son of God. By the time that Jesus was born, people in the eastern part of the empire were increasingly worshipping Caesar Augustus as a god. Archaeologists have discovered an inscription called the Mirian inscription, and it refers to Caesar Augustus. It says this, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and saviour of the whole world. Well, there can only be one son of God who is saviour of the world, and it's not Caesar Augustus. Can you see how the collision course has been set? Caesar Augustus is powerful by the world's standards, but God is in control. He even uses Caesar's census to ensure that the real son of God is born in the right place in Bethlehem. But what this collision course and eventual crash tells us is that there are two kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom and the world's kingdom. Colossians 1.13 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion or the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We either belong to the darkness or the light. There's no in-between. The good news is that through Jesus, we can be transferred from darkness to light. But the world is so corrupt that many don't realize or don't care that they're in darkness. When senior Nazis were brought to trial at the end of the Second World War, most of them maintained their twisted ideals to the end. Interestingly, uh, they did IQ tests on the 24 defendants of the Nuremberg trials, and all of them were above average IQ. Some of them were way above average. Yet in spite their intelligence and the heinous nature of their crimes, most of them, not all of them, but most of them showed no remorse. Now, if highly intelligent war criminals struggle to recognize or to care that they're sinful, that they're in the dark, I think you can see how it can be difficult for the population at large to recognize that we are, the world is in darkness. Because the darkness is, in a, in a way, so normal to us. Thinking about the Nazis, I sometimes uh, wonder how the SS didn't realize they were batting for the wrong team. I, uh, I imagine two of them sitting there and one saying to the other, well, we wear black uniforms and our emblem is a skull and crossbones. Do you think we're the baddies? <laughs> well, I think we see the answer in John uh, 3.19. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
The world loves darkness. That is why this clash of kingdoms resulted in Jesus being crucified. Jesus' kingdom clashes with the kingdom of this world. Next we see that Jesus' kingdom exposes the kingdom of this world. Uh, When we see how Jesus' kingdom operates, it reveals, it exposes just how corrupt the world is. Uh, Have you ever played pin the tail on the donkey? You're blindfolded, you're in darkness, and you've got to pin the tail on the donkey's rear. You do have this in Australia, don't you? I'm talking about a cardboard donkey, not a real one for anyone. Uh, and, And you're trying to pin this tail on the donkey, and you think you've got it in the right place until the blindfold is removed, and then you realize that you pin the tail on the donkey's nose, or maybe it's not even on the donkey. And like the blindfold being removed, the manifestation of Jesus' kingdom, the light coming into the world, has the effect of showing us just how badly wrong we've got it. Our ideas of power and greatness, our priorities and aspirations are all upside down. And we see this throughout Luke's gospel. Last week we looked at Mary's song. She sang these words. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Luke 13, verse 30. There are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. Luke 14, 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Luke 18, 17. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The world's values are exposed. They're shown to be upside down and back to front. And we see that especially clearly in the story of the nativity. God didn't come into his creation with a huge display of power such that no one could miss. Yes, it was miraculous, it was supernatural, there were angels involved. But in many ways, it was all rather ordinary. We tend to get caught up on the inn and the stable and the manger and the animals that the Bible doesn't even mention. Uh, And actually, the language that's used uh, suggests that Jesus was born in the lower room of a house where people usually slept upstairs. And uh, this lower room would have been used for all kinds of things. It would have been used for storage. It would have been used as a guest room. It would have been used sometimes for animals. That's why there was a manger. Uh, What's more, Mary and Joseph were probably staying with relatives. Bethlehem at the time was a very small town. You're talking 300 people maximum. Uh, Joseph was from Bethlehem. It would be very odd if he didn't have any relatives there. If you go and stay with relatives who don't have a lot of space, you'll probably find yourself sleeping downstairs on the sofa or a blow-up bed. What Luke is describing is really the ancient equivalent of that. You know, It's sometimes suggested that we might have expected Jesus to be born in a palace. After all, he is a king. Uh, but again, that misses the point. It's incredible. It's phenomenal. It is mind-boggling that God was born at all. Whether it's in a palace or a stable, God was born. The fact that the God of the universe became flesh, became a baby, shows that he exercises his power with a humility that we can't even begin to comprehend. Having said that, I do think it's significant that Jesus had such an ordinary birth. It really does pour contempt on human attainment and pride, doesn't it? Uh, But, you know, the incarnation itself, God becoming man, that is the biggest challenge 
to our pride. A number of things sets Christianity apart from other world religions, and one of them is uh, revealed clearly through the Incarnation. For other world religions, getting closer to God is about ascending towards him through our own effort. So God is up here, and we're down here, and if we work hard enough, we, uh, we might be able to raise ourselves up to a level where God is willing to accept us. You know, if we can live morally enough, eat the right food, wear the right clothes, follow the rituals, say the prayers, do good works, then we can close the distance between us and God. That's the idea. But actually it's based on pride. The idea that we could ever do enough to be acceptable to a holy and righteous God is absurd. But Jesus reverses all that. We don't rise up to God God comes down to us. We worship a God who recognizes that we cannot, by our own effort, be perfect as he is perfect. We cannot be like him, and so he came to be like us in every way except he never sinned. That is the incarnation, and because of the incarnation, and because of the events of Easter, we can be made perfect, not in this life, but in the new creation. The process starts in this life, but will be completed in the new creation. Not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus' kingdom revealed and established through the incarnation exposes the kingdom of this world in all its pride and arrogance, corruption, misuse of power, and collusion with evil. Uh, Right now, we have world leaders making thinly-veiled threats to nuke each other over Twitter. Contrast that with this from verse 7. It says, She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. God, who is infinitely power, there's no limit to his power, was swaddled because he displayed the same spasmodic movements that are common to all newborn children. We used to have to swaddle Isabel, keep her arms down by her sides to stop her from scratching her face. It's mind-boggling to think that an omnipotent God would place himself in that position. Such humility, such love, such self-emptying exposes the kingdom of this world, its values, and its praxis. And we see that things cannot continue as they are. And that brings us to our final point. Jesus' kingdom overthrows the kingdom of this world. And this should be very much in our minds during the season of Advent when we look forward with hope to Jesus coming again. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. Uh, During Advent, yes, we look forward to Christmas when we celebrate Jesus coming into the world 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. But that is only the start of the story. The decisive moment in God's plan is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the moment when the victory was won. That is the moment when the kingdom of this world was defeated. So now we are watching and waiting for Jesus' second coming, when he will overthrow and destroy evil and set up his kingdom, establish his kingdom forever. Revelation 11.15 says this, 
Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. With the incarnation came a clash of two kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom exposes the kingdom of this world and the world responded with violence. Jesus was crucified. But the Bible doesn't leave us hanging. There is no question about how all this is going to end. There can only be one kingdom. The kingdom of this world will pass away. Jesus' kingdom will last forever. And so what, what we thought to be great, what we thought to be great ceases to exist. Think about the Roman Empire. And what starts small becomes great. Think about a helpless baby lying in a manger who is in fact the saviour of the world, the sovereign God of the universe. Jesus' kingdom clashes with, exposes, and will ultimately overthrow the kingdom of this world. Right at the end of the New Testament, at the end of the Bible, we hear these words from Jesus. They're the last words of Jesus in the Bible. Yes, I am coming soon, to which we say a resounding, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this uh, news of Christmas is so, well, in one sense it's so familiar to us, but it's so foreign, the idea that the God of the universe can become a human being. And we pray that this Advent and Christmas, we can recapture the wonder and the marvel of this fact. And Father, we pray that we'll be focused on you and that we'll give uh, glory and praise to you this Christmas for coming into the world in such humility to overthrow the darkness that exists in the world, to overcome it with your marvelous light. And we pray that that light will shine in our lives and shine from us, that it will shine from this church. And we pray, Father, that your light to come increasingly in this community. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.